Well, our text this morning as we hear from the living God and his word is 1 Samuel 7, verses 2 to 17. So if you'd keep your Bible there, open to that passage, that'd be very helpful as we move through the text this morning. Welcome to our service at Christ the King. Straight away in verse 2 of our text, the scene is set for us. 1 Samuel 7, verse 2 from the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerim, the day when the Israelites said of the ark and of God, get it away. Get him away. And so they did, do you remember? They sent the ark away. They sent the ark, in fact, to what many scholars say was more of a Canaanite city than an Israelite one, kiriath Jerim. You don't know about it because there's nothing to know about it. It's on the neutral zone of the border of Israel, out of the way. And there it sat under the watch of one Abinadab. Because, you see, Israel couldn't handle it. More to the point, Israel couldn't handle the Lord. And so they asked at the end of last week's text, you recall, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Which is to say that by the time we reach the end of 1 Samuel 6, we've come to realize that the problem the people of Israel faced wasn't the Philistine threat, fundamentally. The Lord had prevailed against them, you remember, last week in a fashion explicitly patterned after the Exodus. He'd struck the Philistines with a plague. And all on his own, the Lord had seen to the return of the ark to Israel as the lords of the Philistines watched from a distance. The Lord could deal with the Philistines. They knew that now. Their problem wasn't ultimately the Philistines, and their problem ultimately wasn't their own corrupt, inept leadership either. We learned a lot about that leadership earlier in Samuel. There was the weak uh, leader, Eli, who knew what was right, but couldn't bring himself to do anything about it. Along with his two worthless, using the Bible's own terms of them, worthless, immoral priest sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they did not know the Lord, the text says, though they were the priests in Shiloh. But they're all dead now. All as the Lord had declared it would be. You remember the prophecy of the man of God who came to Eli in chapter 2. You remember that God had dealt with them all decisively. The problem at this point wasn't the corrupt leadership, not anymore. Israel's fundamental problem was what her problem so often was, and it's what our problem so often is. Her fundamental problem was with God himself. Because they were not rightly relating to God, to their covenant Lord. And we've been in Samuel a few weeks now, several weeks now, well, not several, a few. You remember where we started the very first Sunday 
when we considered in overview the time of the judges, the time that was leading up to the book of Samuel and how the cycle of sin and rebellion had taken deep root in the people and how the Lord would raise up a judge to deliver his people, only the people didn't listen to the judge. And in the end, they'd be worse off than they were before. So just listen again to the summary of that entire time leading up to the book of Samuel as it's put in Judges 2, looking ahead in the book to summarize all that is to come. Judges 2, verses 16 and 17. You don't have to go there. You can just listen, but whatever you'd like. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whether you're here for the first time this Sunday for Samuel or you've been here from the very start of it, what we have to see as we come into 1 Samuel 7 is that this is exactly the way it had continued to be. You remember what we read back in 1 Samuel 3 verse 1? 1 Samuel 3 verse 1, the text summarizes the spiritual situation of Israel this way by saying, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. The people were not hearing from the Lord. And without the word of the Lord, there is no life. There is no right relationship with God. Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The point being that the way of life that honors the Lord and leads to eternal life is life in response to his word, trusting his word, obeying his word. But the word of the Lord was rare in those days, Samuel tells us. And so thus far we've seen the Lord doing two things, haven't we, in the first six chapters of Samuel. We've seen that the Lord is in fact at work to prepare for a new beginning for his people. Even as simultaneously the Lord is bringing judgment on his people for their unfaithfulness. We saw how the Lord was up to something in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. How we met Hannah. Who on her own in Shiloh, in the center of all of this, is praying humbly in faith. And the boy Samuel is born. Samuel is given to the Lord and is serving in Shiloh. And there he grows into a knowledge of the Lord. And the Lord calls him. And you recall then the summary that comes at the end of 1 Samuel 3. It's verses 19 and 20 of 1 Samuel 3. The text says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again to Shiloh at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. All of which means we're ready we're ready for Samuel to step in. 
We're ready for the return of the word of the Lord to his people that he's so obviously preparing for them. We know that's what they need more than anything. But then we turn from that summary at the end of 1 Samuel 3 into 1 Samuel 4, and there's no Samuel. Right? For three chapters, there's no Samuel. And in fact, for 20 years beyond the end of those three chapters, as we'll see in a minute, we get no mention of Samuel. And you remember what happened. The people towed out the ark and they try to manipulate the Lord and they're slaughtered by the Philistines because the hand of the Lord is against them. He allows them to be defeated. Then the ark is captured. The glory has departed Israel and Hophni and Phinehas and Eli are all dead. And then we follow in chapters 5 and 6, the ark among the Philistines until the scene when the ark returns to Israel in Beth Shemesh at the end of chapter 6. You remember from last week and we saw how all that Exodus imagery had been built into this to send the message that the Lord was their king and he had returned and we find out that actually when he did, nothing had changed. You see, that's the point of the end of chapter 6. Nothing had changed. The ark came back, and in the end, they didn't respond rightly to it. I mean, it seemed okay at first. There was some rejoicing, and they sacrificed the cows. Remember, they had pulled the ark into Beth Shemesh and all that marvelous narrative. But then it didn't take long. And the Lord struck a great number of them dead, and we talked about what that was about, perhaps, and it was then rejection. There's no repentance in response to the act of the Lord in that time. It was rejection. It was all, get it away. They say the same thing as the Philistines did. They'd experienced the heavy hand of God against them. It's now as we come into chapter 7 and we're left wondering why, why? And we clearly see why that was. Look again now at verse 2 of chapter 7. From the day that the ark was lodged at curiath Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years, 20 years, 20 years before the next significant event, which is what ends verse 2 and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now watch this, because I changed how I understood this verse in the course of this week, preparing to preach on this. Verse 2 isn't saying, I don't think, that Israel lamented for 20 years. I'm convinced that verse 2 is saying that they got rid of the ark as they wanted. 20 years passed, and then all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So here's the question. What happened during those 20 years? Well, you know what happened? It's Judges 2 all over again. They whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. The Israelites had little to nothing to do with the Lord for 20 years. That's what happened. The ark is lodged, literally put away, tucked away at Kiriath-Jerim. 
so that the people lived then without regard for it and what it stood for, the covenant between Israel and the Lord. And just as they had during the era of the judges, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. For 20 years. Until finally, after 20 years of continued Philistine oppression, after 20 years of whoring after the Canaanite gods, something shifted. And we just read the shortest of notes at the end of verse 2 of our text. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And I think the great mystery of this text is why? <laughs> why the turn? Now, I should say, first of all, that it's not easy to know what the language at the end of verse 2 means precisely. The ESV has laments, uh, which is possible, but I think only if you're, if you're giving it a bit of a positive sense, a positive turn, because there's a serious study that suggests it could be that the correct Hebrew verb is one that would mean yearned, translating then, and all the house of Israel yearned after the Lord. In other words, I think this is right. There's a positive attitude that is intended in the wording at the end of verse 2. After 20 years. So my question is why? Why the turn? Or why the beginning of a turn? The language is emotional language. This isn't repentance yet. The circumstances we don't know. There's not any information for us to know this. It might be in response to frustration. After 20 years, their idols hadn't done anything for them, it turns out, or Maybe the oppression of the Philistines had become too much in some way. Any of that or other things might be a possibility. But I'm inclined to think that the answer lies deeper than that. I think Israel begins to lament or to yearn after the Lord because it was time. That This is what the Lord had been preparing for since Samuel was born. In fact, I would suggest to you that for these 20 years, though the book doesn't say it, I would suggest to you it's Samuel probably hadn't been silent. He was a prophet. I think it's safe to assume he'd been preaching and preaching and preaching. And what had come of it? Well, nothing it would seem. For 20 years, the people pursued the gods of the Canaanites. And for 20 years, they had nothing to do with Yahweh. What do you think's running through Samuel's mind in these 20 years? In the end, the only real answer I have to the question of why there was a change in Israel after 20 years is that God was gracious to them because it was finally time that whatever the circumstances are that prompted it, the time had come, and Samuel was ready, verse 3, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, listen to him, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, I, I suggest to you that that's not the first time that Samuel had told the Israelites to put away their foreign gods. 
I imagine he'd been saying that for 20 years. Samuel knows that their emotional cry isn't necessarily enough. I mean, look carefully. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, he says, if you are. Turns out this time they were. Something's different. There was a lamenting, a wailing, a yearning. And dear friends, who knows the ways of the heart? Only the Lord. But simply the intention to turn or to return to the Lord, Samuel knows that's not enough. Your emotions and your intentions, those are insufficient. What I need to see is the practical steps of reformation. For 20 years, Israel hadn't recovered from the Eli era. They'd put the ark out of sight. They would largely put it out of mind. In its place, it had come in the full-blown worship of other gods. We'll talk about that in a minute. You see the restatement of who these gods are in verse 4, where it says the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The Baals and the Ashtaroth. Both of those are in the plural in there. But they're speaking of the plural images of these two deities. Baal is the chief Canaanite male deity, and Ashtoreth, in the singular, was the female and Ashtoreth is the wife of Baal, or Baal. Baal, or Baal, was the storm god, and he was also the god of fertility, and his wife Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility. It's a fertility cult, essentially. And it was widespread, and there would have been numerous images of these deities in Israel, which is why they're in the plural here, I think. And the worship of these fertility gods, though Samuel doesn't talk about it explicitly, would have been expressed in explicit sexual acts as a way of encouraging similar activity between the gods, thus bringing life to the earth and abundance of crops and so on. And it was wildly popular and it was altogether against what the Lord had commanded his people to be. And it had come to Israel, I think, not in any small part. We saw the roots of it back in chapter 2 when we read about the, the indulgences of Hophni and Phinehas in Shiloh who did not know the Lord. And why were they engaging in this way at the tabernacle? Answer, they're just going the ways of the nations around them. And the Lord would judge them for it, but these corrupt priests had led the people into this apostasy and the people had abandoned faithfulness to the Lord. And even though God's judgment had fallen, nothing had changed and they'd rejected the ark. And for 20 years they went their way, fully following the gods of the Canaanites until now. Until now, because now is when the Lord had raised up Samuel for this. He called and appointed and equipped Samuel, as we saw in chapter 3. And now when Samuel spoke, the people listened. That's what verse 4 says. And they served the Lord only. They did it. Which is something that ought to just stop you dead in your tracks for a moment. Because it's been a very long time since we've seen this kind of response from the people of Israel. Isn't it? 
I mean, 1 Samuel 7 is just one of those few times when in all the Old Testament, Israel clearly gets it. When they get it right. When all Israel, the text says, why? Because the Lord was delivering them. The Lord had sent his deliverer. The Lord had raised up Samuel. The Lord had prepared his people for this. He sent his deliverer. And they served the Lord only. You know this is always what the Lord requires. I want you to realize, you do already, I'm sure, but I want you to realize that there's nothing new about what Samuel's saying here, right? Absolutely nothing new. Nothing flashy about it or new about it. Moses said all the same stuff. The books of the law emphasize exactly the same thing. The Shema itself says it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Samuel being a great prophet doesn't mean that everything he says is new. None of it's new. The prophet is just one who speaks for the Lord. And this is what the Lord says all the time. This is what we say all the time. We say these words every week. To love the Lord your God with all your heart is the constant demand of the scriptures. We're very near the bullseye of the Bible here, aren't we? Including the New Testament, including Jesus. I mean, Stephen reads it every week. Jesus' summary of the law. Why? Why? Because the word of God spoken to Israel remains the word of God to us. Nothing's changed. We're called to walk with the same full-hearted obedience to the Lord. Direct your heart to the Lord, Samuel says. That means serve him only. It's not about how you feel about the Lord. The, the heart language biblically refers to our whole selves, our core, who we are. And the truth is that our hearts are always turned towards something. And we might think of ourselves as being far more sophisticated than ancient people were or ancient Israelites because, well, we, you know, we don't have images of fertility gods and goddesses hanging on our walls. And we think we don't. And we don't tend in the modern day to see religion as anything to be followed after, certainly not to become the vehicle to achieve our desires or our human desires, but these desires for money or power or sex or pleasure or whatever it is, there's no shortage of the pursuit of all of these things today, is there? We find our security in what we most want. So Samuel gives them this two-part command in verse 3, which really just amounts to the same thing put in two ways. Put away the foreign gods, he says. And direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. Which therefore affords us this fundamental pastoral insight, doesn't it? Your heart is not directed to the Lord if you've not actively put away the idols that you've worshipped in your life. You 
your heart isn't directed to the Lord if you've not actively put away the idols that you've worshipped in your life, removed them, ended your following of them, put to death the deeds of the flesh, Paul says. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says. Same principle, can't be done. One has to go. This is New Testament Christianity, 100%, right? Listen to what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. What's faith? 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. Your faith, Thessalonians, in God has gone forth everywhere, for they report, what? How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You hear that? It's turning to serve the living and true God. Now we know present in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's the same movement we see in 1 Samuel 7. And they do it by the grace of God. So verse 5, Samuel says, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you, which is incredibly insightful because Samuel knows that he needs to intercede, that Israel needs an intercessor. You and I need an intercessor. Don't lose sight of that. Israel had broken their relationship with the Lord. They'd provoked him to anger. They'd come to understand that they could not stand before him. And so God provides the intercessor. Samuel's the one who's able to do what they clearly were not able to do, to effectively pray for themselves. And so they gather at Mizpah. They're following the Lord's deliverer, which is in the territory of Benjamin. Mizpah just means watchtower, so it's probably an elevated place where they can see for some distance, which comes into play here in a minute. And in verse 6, it says, They drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And they knew what their sins were that they committed. It's not just some general sense of we've done wrong things in our life sort of confession. It's specific. And Samuel told them how to be specific, and they name their sin, and they take actions that accompany their speech. And all of that is repentance, right? And the pouring out of the water, it's not entirely clear as to what that means exactly, but I did find this interesting verse in Lamentations this week in my reading around on this stuff. In calling people to repent, in Lamentations 2 verse 19, it says, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Not bad. Not a bad parallel, I think. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is what they couldn't stand at the end of chapter 6. The key was their heart. In any event, the scene ends then in verse 6 with the statement, And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. He'd called Israel back to the Lord. He'd prayed for them. Which is to say, as one commentator says it, that Samuel had set things right in Israel by his words to the people from God and by his words to God for the people. You see, it's Samuel who's the key. 
And the Lord does this amazing work at Mitzpah. The hearts of his people are now his again. Why? Because he delivered them. So what would happen then when the next test came? Well, they didn't have to wait long. Verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. They saw their chance. All Israel in one place. You remember it had been some 20 years earlier when the people of Israel found themselves at a place called Ebenezer in 1 Samuel 4, verse 1. Remember that? Where it says the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. See the point? It's happening again now. The people are afraid, the text says, which is not a response they had in 1 Samuel 4. But then in verse 8, we see the evidence of what had changed in them. And they said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us. No, that's not quite what they say. They say, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. That he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. You see, they asked Samuel to pray to the Lord our God, they say. They didn't use that language in chapter 4. There's just calling for the ark in an attempt to manipulate the Lord into honoring his covenant with them even though they'd broken it. You see the contrast? Now the people have returned to the Lord with their hearts, the text says. So now they ask for prayer. Prayer. Why prayer? Because they depend on the Lord now entirely. You don't pray of all things when enemy troops are approaching unless you think prayer is the most important thing you can do. Verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Likely that's... The specifics don't parallel exactly what's in Leviticus, but likely this burnt offering of the lamb is... is, the, is an atonement for sin offering. And Samuel does it. He cries out to the Lord for Israel. And then the text says, the Lord answered him. Which ought to stop us again for a moment. Because this is the first time since chapter 1 when the Lord heard another prayer from a faithful woman where it's the first time since then that the Lord acts positively towards his people in this book. So verse 10, the Lord then thunders with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel, evidently without the Israelites doing anything. The Lord did the whole thing. Now, we're in the ancient Near East, of course. I mean, we think, what's this big deal about thunder? Well, you don't live in that world. Thunder and lightning on the battlefield. You find other texts that talk about this. It's widely seen as the sign that a deity is angry and it's dangerous. So there's a psychological effect of the thunder of the Lord, the thunderstorm on the Philistine army. It's debilitating because Baal's supposed to be their storm god, right? And now Israel's God's taken over and has determined their defeat. They dealt with Israel's God before. 
They know it's a lost cause. All that's left is for Israel to mop up. And so that's the way it goes. It brings us then to verse 12 as we close our time this morning. In the ancient Near East, after important victories, military leaders, usually kings, would set up these monuments to their victories. Well, there's no military leader here. Just the Lord. But when these military leaders would send up these monuments to these, their victories, they'd inscribe them with texts that celebrated the great power of the king. And they would also maybe mention the God's great power behind him. But verse 12 gives us a different kind of reaction. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. You love that. No mention of Samuel's own role. No mention of the power of the Israelites or any of that. The language of helping there doesn't mean just sort of assisting. It means delivering. It means saving. It means Samuel saying the entire thing is due to Yahweh's help. Ebenezer, the word means stone of help. And it's debated, but my conclusion is that this Ebenezer isn't the same place as the Ebenezer mentioned in chapter 4, because I think what Samuel's doing is sending a clear signal in giving the same name to this memorial stone to say that the earlier Ebenezer had an ironic name. At that stone of help, Israel was not helped. But at this new one, at this new Ebenezer standing as a testimony that the Lord had helped, that the Lord had saved his people fundamentally from their sinful hearts. And then also from their earthly enemies. Till now the Lord has helped us, Samuel declared. It's still the language of the Lord's people. There's a hymn that ends with the verse, We'll praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that's to come. That, I think, is what Samuel means. We'll praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that's to come. And it becomes our cry as well. Because we have a deliverer too. I mean, I, I just think you can't quite miss it. Samuel comes and speaks the word of the Lord to repent. Jesus is that word who calls us to repentance. And Samuel offers intercessions for his people. Jesus is the advocate who intercedes for us before the Father. Samuel offers an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. Jesus is the very Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. Samuel judges Israel all the days of his life, setting to right the people of God with their Lord. Jesus will judge the nations, including you and me, meaning we have assurance of our right standing before the Father. Till now the Lord has helped us. Indeed he has. And as we walk in obedience to him, hearing his word, turning from sin, 
what we know is that he'll continue to help us, to deliver us, to save us, until the day when he brings us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.